Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hi, my name is Dr. Robert Houle. I'm an associate professor of history at Fairleigh Dickinson University. And I'm here today with uh, Professor David Rosen, uh, professor of anthropology here at Fairleigh Dickinson University as well. And we're here to talk about his book, Child Soldiers in the Western Imagination from Patriots to Victims. Uh, welcome, Dr. Rosen. I'm wondering if I could uh, ask you to begin with uh, how you came to this topic. Okay, thanks, uh, Rob. Uh, I came to the topic out of uh, largely out of personal experiences. I had I was an anthropologist. Uh, I'd been doing um, ethnographic research in Sierra Leone, and uh, at that time it was prior to the civil war in Sierra Leone. But one of the more important um, issues or or um, elements or factors which were taking place uh, at that time was the emergence of uh, armed uh, youth movements, which were essentially agents of the political parties of uh, Sierra, Sierra Leone. And these uh, youth movements were responsible for terrorizing uh, opponents and even the villages of opponents. and. Uh, widely reported to be engaged in uh, mayhem, occasionally even murder. And uh, I began to realize that, uh, that uh, armed children in the times of peace were a pretty serious um, problem in, uh, in, in Sierra Leone. So I, this was before the war, so, but uh, later on when the uh, Civil War began, what was clear was that many of the uh, children who were involved in these youth movements segued rather easily into becoming uh, uh, child soldiers. So a kind of armed militant youth during peacetime became uh, at least an armed militant youth um, during wartime. Now the war was more, more complicated than that in the end. There, you know, in, in the end there was a lot of uh, uh, forcible recruitment of children uh, by the uh, by the by the rebels in particular, but nevertheless, this was an important component in understanding the history of the use of the use of children or the involvement of children in war. Um, I guess another factor was really my uh, own uh, ethnographic uh, reading. I began to think. Um, about oh, I began to think about all of the ethnographies that I had read as a, as an undergraduate. Now, when I was an undergraduate uh, as an American in American anthropology, um, a lot of our readings really focused on uh, Native American peoples of of the Great Plains. And I remember particularly two uh, autobiographical books. One was uh, uh, Two Leggings. The uh, 
biography of a crow warrior, mm-hmm. and the other one was Black Elk Speaks, mm-hmm. uh, who was, was as famous for, in, in, in my days, an undergraduate, not just because of its description of Lakota Sioux culture, but because it was just widely read by lots of students at the time. And one of the outstanding features of that was that Black Elk, at about age 13 or 14, I can't remember exactly what his age was, but it was a, as a youngster, was involved in the uh, Battle of the, of the Little Bighorn uh, and uh, was uh, at that time a, uh, you know, regarded as a, as a, as a young warrior. Mm-hmm. And uh, the same thing goes with, with the Two Leggings. His, mm-hmm. I think his first venture out on the, uh, out on the raiding party was at age uh, 13 mm-hmm. or 14. So I began to realize that uh, the involvement of the children and youth in war was a pretty long-term phenomenon, mm-hmm. and that this really uh, was in contrast with the prevailing uh, ideologies of uh, the current era, which seemed to suggest that uh, that children's involvement in war uh, is really a modern phenomena, the whole idea of the child soldier as a, a mo- modern phenomena. Uh, people were explaining it largely in terms of uh, colonialism and the... Uh, and the uh, kinds of uh, collapses of society and traditional cultures which were associated with colonialism. And all of that modeling didn't make a lot of sense to me if you looked at this historically. You'd have to account for why it was that there were so many children involved in, uh, in warfare for such a long period of time. And it began to raise two questions in my mind. The first was the question of, Essentially, which is still a question I ask today, who is a child, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and how to answer that question both historically and anthropologically has remained important to me. And the second question, which is related to it, is what are the roles and rights and duties associated with childhood? Because you may decide that someone is a child at a certain age, but you may also not be clear about whether or not childhood is compatible with various kinds of roles in society. Uh, excellent. This is your third work on child soldiers, um, and I'm a third book on child soldiers. And I'm wondering if you can give us a sense for how your thinking has evolved over the course of those three books. Okay, so the first book I wrote was uh, called uh, Armies of the Young, uh, Child Soldiers in War and Terrorism. And that really was really an attempt to try to look at um, child soldiering comparatively and historically. Um, to take examples, some of which I didn't think were uh, all that intuitive, but to take different kinds of examples of children in war and to try to look at the historical backgrounds of what uh, were the factors which led these different young people to be involved in war. So in that case, in that book, I, I focused on um, three cases. One was the case of Sierra Leone, which I had been most familiar with. Uh, the second case was the case of uh, Palestinian children involved in uh, in uh, the Intifada and uh, and in other uh, Palestinian uh, uh, militant activities in uh, Israel and Palestine. And the third case was the case of uh, 
Jewish child soldiers. These were children who were members of partisan units in the Second World War. And I took each one of these cases as indicating uh, different, different kinds of trajectories by which children came to war and also looked at the historical context in which those uh, trajectories uh, played out. So it really was, in that sense, a classic comparative study in anthropology, but that it was very historically grounded. Mm -hmm. The last book that I wrote, which is well, the book which is the subject of the conversation uh, today, um, which uh, has a different focus, and, and that focus really is um, how our thinking about child soldiers has changed. So one was really descriptive and comparative, and the other one really relates to have there been changes in the way in which we, in which we as a society have, have thought about child soldiers, and that's why the, the title, which essentially, or the subtitle, which was uh, From Patriots to Victims, um, shows how our ideas about children in war, which I one time appeared to suggest that they were, uh, in fact, uh, the greatest of all patriots when they volunteered for armed service, mm -hmm. to now our ideas about children at war, in which they are seen as the ultimate victims. So they go from the ultimate patriots to the ultimate victims in our thinking about them. Mm -hmm. um, Perhaps this is a, a question biased by the fact that I'm a historian, but reading your work, it struck me that it is uh, a very historical work. I'm wondering if you found that uh, over the course of those three books that your work has become more historical instead of anthropological? Right. Well, it's a good, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, there's a lot of anthropology which is really history, mm -hmm. um, and... And I think even in some of the theorizing about anthropology, there have certainly been anthropological thinkers who've, who've suggested that really the boundaries between a lot of anthropology and a lot of history are, are really, really pretty, pretty murky. And uh, in fact, I think uh, the argument that uh, all cultures uh, need to be seen in terms of their constructedness through history mm -hmm was really an argument that was put forth by the earliest American anthropologists, such as uh, Franz Boas. I mean, mm -hmm. that was really so. So, yes, I think I am I am very, very historically minded uh, anthropologist, and I think that's uh, not uncommon in, 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 in anthropology. Right. So let me uh, take that and unpack it a little bit, particularly within the, the context of this idea of child soldier. And I wonder if there is, or if you found that there's a fundamental difference in how we have come to think about childhood uh, through the ages, and then in connection with that, how we've come to think about child soldier. Is there, is, so your, you start, for example, this particular work by looking, comparing uh, Andrew Jackson and Ishmael Bea. Um, those are from two very different eras. Uh, is it fair to compare the two? Right. Well, it depends on why you're comparing them. I'm really comparing them only in the sense that I wanted to show how children of approximately the same age mm -hmm. would be treated rather differently in different historical periods and in different and in different contexts. 
so in the case of Andrew Jackson, he was about age 13 when he joined the uh, forces of the revolutionaries in the United and then in the colonial United States um, um, in uh, South Carolina. That's that's where he was. It was South Carolina was an area which was uh, very very divided uh, in its sentiments during the American Revolution. It was very much a civil war uh, between patriots and loyalists. And he was uh, definitely on the uh, on the patriot side, and there was a, a particularly dramatic moment in his uh, involvement in war in which he was captured by the British. There was a uh, an attempt to try to make him at least this is the story mm -hmm. an attempt to try to make him. Um, shine the boots of a British officer, <laughs> to which he refused, and he was then severely beaten by this British officer with the back of the officer's sword. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's some evidence that his uh, brother, a slightly older brother, but still uh, a, a, a child soldier by modern-day standards, um, was also involved in this episode and may actually have died from wounds uh, uh, essentially incurred during this, or may have died later from disease, but in any case, he, he, he died not long afterwards. And uh, I guess the key point of this is that when Andrew Jackson ran as for President of the United States, this was a very, very important moment in his, uh, in his campaign. He was the person who had the first presidential autobiography, or biography rather, um, written about him. <laughs> And this moment in which he was stood up to the British as a child, in which he was, in which he was a soldier, was seen as a central moment in his political campaign. He mm -hmm. called himself the hero of two wars, and in the <laughs> first war, he was uh, a, ch a child soldier. Mm -hmm. So now, going back a couple of hundred years, uh, closer to our time, there's the case of Ishmael Bia, and uh, Ishmael Bia was uh, a soldier in the uh, Sierra Leone army, uh, forcibly recruited in, in this instance. And ultimately, after the civil war in Sierra Leone came to an end, he made his way back to the United States here. And he um, was uh, educated. I uh, got a degree from Oberlin. And, uh, and ultimately began to write about his experiences, some of which were sort of fairly horrific. But the way in which he wrote about his experiences and the way in which his book was received, it was distributed through the Starbucks chain, <laughs> basically for, for a while, but it's called A Long Way Gone. It's quite a well-written book. Mm -hmm. But the main point of Ishmael Bia's um, writing of this book and his presence as a public personality was really to become a spokesperson for all of the victims of war. In mm -hmm. other words, his symbolic moment was as a victim. While mm -hmm. Andrew Jackson was really regarded as a patriot, um, Ishmael Bia was a victim. Now, they both suffered in very dramatic ways, mm -hmm. both of them did, and both of them came out of the war as orphans. Mm -hmm. But the cultural context has shifted dramatically from the time of Jackson to to Bia, 
and therefore their participation in war is seen in radically different kinds of terms. Now, you asked me about why did things change. Uh, um, well, part of it has to do with the changing context of our understanding of childhood. So, beginning sometime in the 19th century in this country, and I think this is a well-established by historians of childhood, there began to be a sense that people perceived their childhood as an age of incredible innocence and vulnerability. And that was not always the way in which we understood childhood in this country. Um, for boys, for example, in particular, in the 17th, uh, 18th, 19th centuries, uh, boys were expected to be risk-takers. Uh, but slowly this idea that, that, uh, that children needed protection uh, began to emerge in, in our country, not just in the United States, but also across the West. Now, it didn't, it didn't take place in one moment, um, and, um, and it didn't take place across all class and ethnic and racial strata at the same time. It took many, many years for this to, to take root. It took root first amongst the middle class and later on in, in across the rest of society. But this was a very, very important moment in our history. So slowly but surely, um, people began to think that uh, that childhood and military service were really incompatible mm -hmm. with with each other. They didn't always think that way, mm -hmm. and in fact, there's still remnants of that uh, idea that childhood and military service might be good mm -hmm. in, in in many many societies throughout the world. We still recruit uh, people who who child, children's rights advocates would regard as children. The United mm -hmm. States recruits 17-year-olds with parental permission. Mm -hmm. England recruits 16-year-olds with parental permission. Germany recruits 17-year-olds with parental permission. Um, many, many people in our society think that this kind of military training is actually good for youngsters. But we used to recruit children uh, into the Navy, for example, at age 13 mm -hmm. with parental permission. We thought this was a very, very good idea. Mm -hmm. some way for, for, for our society and indeed for its children. So um, this idea that childhood and, and, and the military were incompatible, it took quite a long time to take root in, uh, in American society. And, um, and the 19th century, I think, was the beginning of the turning point. It wasn't the turning point, but it was the beginning of the, of mm -hmm. the turning point in our thinking about, about this. I mean, what traces, of course, the question of if there is a key moment where that then flips. Is it, uh, is there something that happens that makes people think that children are children uh, versus military heroes? Yeah, the children who were killed in the Civil War were all treated as, uh, as uh, heroes, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, and as martyrs. Mm -hmm. I mean, the language of martyrdom was very, very strong in the, in the 19th century, so that um, um, in the early days of the war, there were several youngsters who were, who were killed, and their funerals were these grand... Uh, ceremonial occasions uh, um, in which the public participated and the uh, 
thinking at that time was not, oh, this is terrible, these children were recruited into the army, mm -hmm. but uh, look at what these uh, awful confederates did to our, <laughs> did to our, to our children. In right. other words, they were regarded as heroic and as martyrs to the, to, to, to the cause. Right. So even in the 1860s, the idea of the child hero, the child martyr, was very prevalent in uh, American society, even though we didn't uh, really conscript or recruit children, we still allowed many, many thousands and thousands of children to join the armies of the Union, and I presume this was also the case with the Confederacy, although my book shows this is significantly better hard data on mm -hmm. recruitment than the, uh, for the Union forces than we have for the Confederacy. I think uh, President Grant was supposed to have quipped that the Confederate Army robbed both the cradle and the grave. Although well, I think much could be said about the Union Army as well. Mm -hmm. There was really widespread recruitment across all age categories. But that was not unusual, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of demographic data about Washington's uh, Rebel Army at Valley Forge, and there were many, many soldiers between the ages of 12 and 17 in the, in the Rebel forces. So the Recruitment of children was not really um, un un unusual. Although by the time of the Civil War, I think people didn't necessarily think this was optimal mm -hmm. at, uh, at, 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 at that time. Right. And by the time we got to World War I, things changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. in, in World War I, um, the United States in particular really relied upon um, conscription. Mm -hmm. And that Conscription basically meant that uh, the United States could use all kinds of criteria for determining which soldiers it really wanted. It could, it could recruit, um, it had the bureaucratic apparatus to be able to, at that point, register all young men in American society with the draft. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it could decide that it would not recruit shipbuilders, but it might recruit... Mm -hmm ordinary workers. It would mm -hmm. not recruit farmers, but mm -hmm. it would recruit um, uh, people who might be skilled uh, as uh, sailors, or well, not, not sailors, but as uh, uh, in other professions of the army, in, in the army that the army might have needed. So um, it was kind of this rationalization, you might say, of recruitment that meant that you didn't really need children. Mm -hmm. Uh, up until that time, up until World War One, we mostly relied upon a volunteer army. Even conscription in the Civil War wasn't like like conscription was in World War One. Mm -hmm. Conscription in the Civil War was organized around congressional districts, and it was only used to fill the holes where there wasn't volunteers. Right. So uh, basically, uh, the first real conscription that we had had was in World War One, and that really did away with children. For the mm -hmm. most part, now children did still continue to serve, mm -hmm. but uh, they would lie their way in. There were lots of ways in which children could get in, but there wasn't the institutional incentives to recruit. Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting there, to me at least, is the connection between martyrdom and child soldier, which suggests that children who died in combat were seen as inherently more tragic than everyone else, and I wonder if that's been something that's been constant through history, or if that's developed with a particular ideal about childhood that we have? Well, certainly the, 
I think today we would say that children killed in war was tragic, um, but also we would say that their that their deaths were um, essentially uh, unnecessary, unnecessary, and real violation of our norms, mm -hmm. and that. That tragedy was seen in the context of the illegitimacy of their recruitment. Right. While at the time mm -hmm. of the Civil War, um, there's no doubt that those parents and communities which lost children found that it was tragic. And of course, we don't know really how it is that individual families might have felt about the death of their child. Mm -hmm. But what we know is the public reception of those deaths, the public understanding of those deaths. Uh, these children were seen as role models for mm -hmm. uh, for everyone else. That mm -hmm. uh, that essentially their sacrifice was seen as a sacrifice to be emulated mm -hmm. uh, there at the time of the Civil War, mm -hmm. and uh, no one would make that kind of claim these days. Mm -hmm. Is this why, in your mind, um, child soldiers in the Third World are seen as particularly problematic today? Well, I think the the whole problem of child soldiers is really one of context rather than of numbers. I, there probably were more child soldiers in the past than there are today. I mm -hmm. mean, the, the standard number, which is usually trotted out, is somewhere between 250 to 300,000 child soldiers. People have been reciting the same number for the last 20 or 25 years, so I assume it really means, at least in my point of view, that people don't really know exactly how many child soldiers there really are mm -hmm. in, in, in the world today. But the plight of the child soldier is seen largely as a problem largely because we no longer believe that this role of a soldier is really an appropriate role for children. Mm -hmm. we, we, in fact, we've rejected that notion almost, almost universally. Um, uh, certainly when we're talking about children under the age of uh, 15. There's some controversy about whether or not children between ages 15 to 18 ought to be considered to be, um, um, well, ought to be considered as uh, illegally recruited mm -hmm. um, children. The international criminal law only prohibits the recruitment of children under age 15, mm -hmm. but various international treaties, uh, such as the optional protocols or the Convention on the Rights of the Child, uh, asks the nations that are signatory to those treaties to push that age upwards towards uh, 18, and many nations have complied, and some not fully up to 18, let's say like the United States, which is a signatory to that treaty, but still recruits children uh, at the age of uh, 17. So uh, there's a general emerging consensus, at least, that no one should recruit any child under age 15, and people see this as really a breach of our current norms mm -hmm. completely. And the controversy about the children in the middle somewhere mm -hmm. along. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of our norms as well, I'm going to bring back to Africa in particular here. Um, is it fair that we've applied our norms about what childhood is and who can fight in wars? Uh, to societies that perhaps don't have the same ideals. That's a really hard. That's a really hard question. I, I would say uh, I've actually asked uh, uh, some of my own students from time to time. Would they agree that, uh, depending on your culture, children would 
can be recruited at a younger age. And uh, most people are kind of hesitant. In other words, the norm that exists now, which uh, is essentially pushing recruitment to an older and older age, seems to be um, increasingly accepted through, uh, through the world, but not, but not everywhere, not, not, not everywhere. Mm. Ideally, I would think um, that there ought to be something more like federalism in international law, and that not every society needs to have exactly the same set of standards mm-hmm. with respect to uh, norms. This mm-hmm. is really in total opposition to most, uh, I guess, children's rights and human rights thinking, which really would like there to be a single standard, something that's called a straight 18 position mm-hmm. for recruitment. My sense is that there should be a little bit more wiggle room in, uh, in that, um, because I think some of the nations of the world already make use of that wiggle room, that right. uh, in which they essentially allow younger children to be recruited, sometimes to do with some restrictions, like for example in England, uh, children can be recruited at age 16, but there's limitations on whether or not they can serve in combat or not. They usually are restricted from serving in combat. I think there are a lot of different ways in which you can uh, think about the problem of recruitment in a way which doesn't require there to be a single bright line mm-hmm. drawn. Mm-hmm. Even the idea of uh, sort of the heroic ideal of a child that that you've said is, is lost, uh, a child fighting in combat. I mean, that strips away the potential for children in Sierra Leone who are fighting, right? They are automatically not heroes if that's been stripped away from them. They're victims or perpetrators or somewhere in between, but the ability to be heroes has been denied them. And I even, and I, and I wonder how much of that is connected to race, in part because I think about my own, own childhood where uh, myself and my friends went to watch a movie called Red Dawn, uh, which is a terrible 80s action movie in which a group of high school students rise up to throw off or or defend off a a fictional invasion of, I think, the United States, Colorado, uh, by both Cubans and Russians. Um, But these are, by every account, these are child soldiers, um, and they're... They're, the movie made them into heroes and heroes to be emulated if it came to that. Right, I think you see that in, in a lot of fiction. You see a kind of uh, privileging of, uh, of whiteness mm. in, this, uh, in this discussion. You can just think of contemporary, uh, many contemporary novels or even children's novels or novels for children and youth. Uh, think about, for example, the whole Harry Potter series. There's yep. something there called Dumbledore's Army, and uh, mm-hmm. most of those kids are are white. Not all of them, but most of them are white. You right. can think about the Hunger Games yep. as another as another example. In all those cases, the fictional heroes, and there are many many other instances, the fictional heroes are white. In other mm-hmm. words, uh, they're they are as white children. Their struggles are really described in rather heroic mm-hmm. ways, mm-hmm. even if it's only in fantasy. Mm-hmm. While the struggles of uh, children of color in other places of the world would ordinarily never be described that way. Mm-hmm. They would always be described in some ways as these terrible victims. So mm-hmm. 
there's there is a strain which goes through literature basically which uh, really essentially works in exactly the way <laughs> that you've described mm -hmm. which in which it basically elevates the white child soldier as uh, as a hero right. and continues to uh, always describe the the, the child of color as a victim. Right, right. Which may be a good opportunity right here to ask about um, to what degree um, this needs to be explored more in the future, your own work uh, going down the road as well. So just maybe ask the question a little bit more neatly. Uh, what are the holes in this particular area of study that need to be filled? And uh, what are you planning on doing in the near future, either to fill those holes or to explore new avenues? Well, I think one of the areas that I've uh, been interested in, I think a lot of people should be interested in, is um, really getting uh, a look at child soldiers from the child's point of view. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, it's hard to get, but in much of our contemporary literature about, ch about children at war, Almost everything about the child's point of view is uh, collected through uh, human rights and children's rights organizations, and it's very, very heavily redacted. And so, um, I mean, for a whole variety of reasons, because it has to be, it's mediated by these organizations and mediated by their interests and their, and their particular civil rights or orientation or human rights orientation. Um, it would be a happier situation if we actually had more of an understanding of uh, children, um, if we had more children who had been able to write about their own experiences mm -hmm. as, as uh, child soldiers. Now, I'm doing a little bit of that, but it's a more historical case. I'm going back to my uh, chapter that I had in uh, Armies of the Young, which is on Jewish child partisans. Mm. And I'm looking at the testimony of, uh, of Jewish child partisans with the aim of trying to reconstruct their experiences um, during World War, during World War II, during the, during, during the Holocaust. And I'm paying a lot of attention to how they understood their situation, how they described the situation. It really was an era of, uh, well, it was an era in which there was not a lot of rights talk in, 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 at that time. <laughs> I'm not saying their testimonies were not shaped by other factors, mm -hmm. but, um, but it was significantly less redacted, and the advantage, of course, many of these children were literate, so they wrote about it in diaries mm -hmm. and, uh, and books and journals and things of that sort. So we have, a, a, you know, a, 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 maybe a better sense or at least a more complex sense of those children's experiences. I think we don't really have a very complex sense yet of the children's experiences of war in the, in the modern day era. Um, as I say, largely because there have not been enough children writing about their experiences. Mm -hmm. Sounds fascinating. Uh, we very much look forward to uh, reading the next work. Uh, I thank you for your time, Dr. Rosen. Uh, the book is uh, excellent work. Uh, having read it, I can highly recommend Child Soldiers in the Western Imagination by Dr. Rosen. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Robert. Really Pleasure. appreciate this. Yep. Okay, thanks. Yep. Good. Sorry, we ran a little long there, but.